That was a perfect song to set us up for looking into God's word, wasn't it? That was great. Good morning, Orangewood. Okay, honesty. How many of you forgot the clock thing? Only a couple. That's good. You're absolved. Uh, We forgive you. Well, this morning we continue our study in uh, the book of Philippians as we continue this series, Grace on Fire, as we're looking at how the gospel of grace affected this church in Philippi in northern Greece. And uh, we're going to finish the first chapter. It's only taken us four weeks to finish the first chapter, but we're going to finish it today. And uh, as we look at verses 21 through 30, but before we look at that, uh, let's talk to the Father. Let's pray. Our great God, we do come into your presence this morning. And Lord, as we gather here today, we echo so much of what we have already just sung. We thank you that we could come into the presence of the holy God. And as we stand here today, as we sit here today, as we worship, we remember that you are, as Isaiah experienced, you are holy, holy, holy. And we revel, we rejoice, we rest, we relax in who you are, the sovereign God of the universe. What a joy to be able to know that you know us perfectly, everything about us, and that you are in every aspect of our life, everywhere we are, you are there in your fullness, and we worship you. And we could come into your presence today and confess our sins, knowing that Jesus has done everything for us, that nothing left is yet to be done to tell us that it is finished, and we rest in him and him alone. Lord, knowing about your sovereignty, though, uh, would scare us if it weren't for this grace, if it weren't for your love and your mercy. And we come as your people today into your presence because you know our hearts. You know every one of us. You know, you know our stories from the start to the finish. You know, you know what we woke up with this morning and the very thoughts of our minds, the fears of our heart, the frustrations of our lives. You know, everybody here, the bills that have to be paid, the challenges that we face relationally, the pain, the things that if we were to talk about out loud right now would bring us to tears, you know us and you care. And so we come into your presence this morning. We ask that your word would be taken by your Holy Spirit, made clear to us, and that the gospel would unleash us into into people that live in light of your grace every day. So now as we look into your word, we pray for the one who teaches that you would forgive him his sins and use one who is finite to communicate your infinite truth. For we have come here today to rest in you. For we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So our text is Philippians 1, verses 21 through 30. I'm going to read that whole text, even though our focus is going to be verses 27 through 30, where Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, for I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with your joy for your progress and joy in the faith, 
so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Here's our focus. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. This is God's holy word. Her name is, uh, is Mary Poplin, not Mary. Mary Poplin, not Mary Poppins. My grandchildren, which, by the way, are better than your grandchildren, uh, have discovered Mary Poppins. Uh, but Mary Poplin gave her testimony in, uh, in an amazing article in Christianity Today of January and February. And, um, and, and I want to read you some of her story because it's fascinating. She starts out by saying this, I met God in a dream. He arranged the encounter. I was not looking for him. At the time, I was 41, and I considered myself wildly progressive. As a college professor, I had been teaching critical theory, radical feminism, multiculturalism, and postmodernism since the early 1980s. One colleague reported to another that I was the party girl of the department. I was spiritual, but not religious, uh, which meant I could be good without God. In my spare time, I would attend all kinds of paranormal seminars, the kind advertised on Whole Food bulletin boards. You shop there? As a graduate student in the 1970s, I attended transcendental meditation classes and experimented with marijuana and psychedelic drugs. Then as a professor in Los Angeles in the 1980s, you knew that was coming, a colleague and I would regularly explore the city's weirdest religions. I would collect crystals and study strange spiritual books. Authors like feminist neo-pagan Starhawk were among my favorites. Eventually, I would dabble in workshops where we bent spoons and practiced hypnosis on each other, while the braver ones tried walking on coals. Central image in my life was the actress Shirley MacLaine dancing on the beach in free-spirited fashion. I was seeking happiness, self-fulfillment, and freedom from restraint, all the while deluding myself about my own goodness. We were children of the 60s, products of the I'm okay, you're okay culture. In my mind, I was like Shirley, dancing freely on the beach. But in certain moments, in the middle of the night or in the darkness of depression, I could see glimpses of who I really was. I was not growing freer. My heart was growing harder, my emotions darker, and my mind's more confused. But I was unable to admit this candidly. In late November, 92... I had an unshakable dream. When I awoke, I remembered every detail, sights, sounds, colors, thoughts, and feelings. It was there I met Jesus and saw who I really was all at the same moment. 
I was in a line of people so long I could, I could see neither the beginning nor the end. We were dressed in gray robes, marching ahead very slowly. Suddenly, we reached an area where a yellow light was emerging. As I approached it, I saw the scene of the Last Supper, remembering it from, from Sunday school. The disciples were eating and drinking and talking to one another. Jesus was not at the table with them, but standing up ahead. We were in a reception line. When I got to Jesus and looked into his eyes, I grasped immediately that every cell in my body was filled with filth. Weeping, I fell at his feet. But when he reached over and touched my shoulders, I suddenly felt perfect peace. I can't read more of that without weeping myself. I read it out loud to myself again this week and wept in my office. That was Mary's story and that was Paul's story. And surely that was many of your stories. Because God in his grace brings us to the end of ourselves. He gives us by his spirit that ability to look deep in our own hearts and to understand that we do not have what it takes to fulfill the law, to be perfect in the presence of a perfect God. We hear the gospel. We see Jesus. I believe this because I, I've sat with Muslims in England who have told stories of Jesus appearing to them. And then when Jesus appears, he transforms us. Her spiritual journey began there, but he, he, the Lord, used so many different people to help Mary move further along in her walk with Christ. She struggled with forgiveness after embracing Christ. She struggled with the guilt over watching pornography so much. She no longer had a taste for it, but she, she felt guilt. Could I really be forgiven? For all that, there are two abortions. Could I really be forgiven? And it was God's people who helped her understand that the grace of God was real in Christ, that Jesus had done it all. And, 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 and that was Paul's experience. And last week, as we started this passage in, 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 in Philippians, we see that what happened is we saw what grace does in a life. Grace becomes a fire that burns and begins to transform everything, doesn't it? It sets us aflame in a good way. It transforms us. Mary was transformed. She was still transforming. And today, this day, she's no longer teaching what she used to teach. Aren't you glad? She knows Jesus. And our journey continues. And last week, we asked the question, as Paul was asking, what do I do with my life? Paul was struggling with, if I get out of prison, and he was in prison chained to a Roman soldier, he's asked the question, what do I do if I live? What do I do with my life? And we saw that he said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And if I'm to live on, this will mean fruitful labor for me. That's what it does. For the individual who comes to faith in Christ, it means a whole, lot, whole life transformation. Even if you face the deepest, darkest moments of existence. Paul was in prison. He thought his head would roll, but the perspective he had was powerful. Only grace can do that. 
And so in verses 21 through 26, we saw that the pronouns there were predominantly I and me, what grace did for Paul. Today, in in verses 27 through 30, we're going to see that the pronouns are predominantly plural. You, yours, us, the body of Christ. What does grace do in an individual? Well, we see what it did in Mary's life and Paul's life and your life and my life. What does it do in a church, in a body? As we gather together, we want to see that. And it's going to unfold here because as there was fruitful labor in Paul's life, there are fruitful outcomes for the body of Christ in a powerful way. And there's three of them standing firm, striving together, suffering fearlessly. Let's look at them uh, together. These powerful, fruitful outcomes for the body, the church, because of grace. First of all, Paul says that I want to see that you are standing firm. Verse 27a, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I'm a hearer of you that you're standing firm. I love that phrase, only conduct yourself. Only conduct yourselves in the plural. In the literal of the original language, it's interesting that that verse can be be translated this way, live as a citizen. Live as a citizen. Now, you remember, I told you, Paul was writing to a church uh, in uh, Philippi in northern Greece, right? And they, they should have been speaking Greek, but they, but they weren't because Philippi was a Roman, what, does anybody remember? Colony, right. Do you want to know the, the actual long title of the colony of Philippi? Say yes. Thank you. I'm going to give it to you anyway. You knew that. So here it is. Here's the formal title. Colonia Augusta Julia Philippensis. You can impress people with that. I want you to know. Did you know what the true long title of the colony of Philippi? And they'll look at you like, what? Colonia Augusta Julia Philippensis. Why do I bring this up? Because, because Paul's writing to people, Christians, in a colonial city Uh, 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 in Greece, but they thought of themselves as stubbornly Roman. They were, they they thought like Romans. They used Latin language. They dressed like they did in, in Rome. They called their magistrates by Roman names. They were stubbornly, relentlessly Roman. And Paul says to them, when he says, only conduct yourselves, he's actually saying, live as a citizen of heaven. Live as a citizen, not of Rome, not of America, but of heaven. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Last week, I told you that we were starting our Wednesday uh, forge downtown and that Joe Creech required all of the men of Willow Creek to go to our... Joe, they didn't all come, but some came. And we got a good start because of the men at Orangewood, and, and it was great. So thank you for praying. But at one of our Ford sites, we have a guy um, who every once in a while will come up to me and say, uh, hey, say, Pete, can we talk? I mean, it's like every six weeks. And you know, a pastor knows when somebody comes up and says, can we talk? What they're saying is actually, can I bring up something I brought up to you before that you haven't done, so I'm going to bring it up to you again. That's kind of, and he said, Pete, can we talk? And I smile, sure, sure, we can talk. And he says, you know what you don't do enough? You teach the Bible, you teach us about Jesus, but you don't, you ought to organize this and we ought to be fighting for America. 
He's a patriot. He's a vet. I'm a patriot. I'm not a vet, but I'm a patriot. I love him. I love, I, I love America. I said, I said, bro, I'm just a Bible teacher. I'm not a community organizer. I don't do that kind of stuff. And you know what? I want you to follow. I want you to follow the king because there's only one king. I want, I want you to be a citizen of heaven. I want you to live stubbornly that way. I, I, I want you to stand firm as a citizen of heaven. And we as a church, as we think of ourselves as Christians, we stand for some things together that are distinctively Christian, don't we? We, we have a confession of faith. We have the Bible as the word of God. We stand together. We're pro-life. Why? Well, we're distinctively Christian. Well, that's, that's who we are. It's who we are. And we stand firm together because we're citizens of heaven. And, and so we're supposed to stand firm in one spirit. What unites us is Jesus Christ. And he's the only thing. He's the only one that unites us. We're so different. And you look around and say, well, there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of diversity here. And yet the reality is what unites us is Jesus. We are saved by Jesus alone. We stand in Jesus. We are in Christ. We serve Christ. We live for Christ. To die is gay, right? Our unity is Jesus. And that's who we stand firm in together. One of the relentless workings of grace is that it enables us to stand firm together in Christ. You, I, I remember a sermon years ago when I was in college in Southern California when I was born and raised. Uh, Norm Geisler came and preached a sermon in our church called, What's the Bible All About? It was the longest sermon I ever heard. Because he was starting from Genesis and walked his way through Revelation. I'm saying, really? I mean, this was a Baptist church, but I mean, really? You're going to go through the whole Bible? Yeah. What's the Bible all about? And every time he went book to book, started in Genesis. By the time he got to Nahum or Habakkuk, I was done. I want you to know. But what's his answer? What's the Bible all about? He brought it up a million times. What's the Bible all about? What would he say? It's Jesus. In every book of the Bible, you find the work of Christ. You find a picture of Christ. Our unity is in Christ. You may not like the fact that I'm from Southern California. I'm sorry. You have to deal with that. You have to accept me. Because I'm in Christ with you. Look around you. You may not like them. Deal with it. I, I, lo- I love this book I skimmed this week. On all honesty, I didn't read it. Tucker and Kessler, all together different. All together different. Interesting book. On the cover, there's four slinkies, a yellow one, a green one, a blue one, and a gray one. And they're all intertwined. We're all a bunch of slinkies thrown together in the church. But what he's dealing with in this book is powerful uh, because he's talking about the fact that, that identity and identity problems are the issues of our age, isn't it? We, str- we have an identity crisis in America today. We have identity politics. People are struggling with gender identity. So many Christians are wondering, what is their alliance? Who am I really in Christ? And he talks about the three types of different in the church. We, are, we have a different, we have the same design in Christ, but we've got human cultures that come together and subcultures that come together. And there's a lot of differences here. Sin. Wow. You want to know the most complicating thing about a church? 
you, me, our sin. I know we're born again. I know we, but sin complicates everything. You know what I found is that a lot of Christians want to, want to think of the church as a conflict-free zone. I've said that before. It's important, but our sin gets in the way. That's why we have to stand firm in Christ together. Augustine put it this way. He said, we must bear the yoke of the daily confusion of our sins. Oh, sometimes I am so confused. Sometimes I feel so torn up at what's going on in here. But the reality is what unites us, what brings wholeness back to me is Christ. What unites us is, hey, I got a challenge for you based on this, based on the reality that our unity is standing firm in Christ because of the gospel. That's what grace does. How about finding somebody that, that you disagree with on theological, biblical, or other issues and sitting down over a cup of coffee this week? Make an appointment. I did that this past week with a, a brother of mine who's involved in the ministry that I'm in, doing great. I, we, we sat down for two and a half hours. We hashed all kinds of things out. And that was the first two and a half hours. There's going to be more. How about do it? That's a challenge. To find your unity in Christ so we can stand together. The bottom line is the church of Jesus Christ has absolutely no time for disunity. We've got too much to do. And so Paul says that when there's grace in the church... What it does is it brings the, the fruitful outcome of standing firm together in Christ. Secondly, notice, I want, I want you to see that what it does is it means that we are striving together for the faith of the gospel. With one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he said in the first part, he says with one spirit, and now he says with one mind. But the word in the original language is soul, psuche. So he's saying with spirit and soul hanging together. I love that, striving together. And the term is, a, is literally a term from which we get the English word athletics, athleticism. Soon, athaluntes. Uh, you can impress your friends with that. Soon, athaluntes. Let's stand together, struggle together, fight together for the faith of the gospel. I love that. Uh, you athletes ought to like that phrase. I did a seminar yesterday, and as soon as I walked into the room, a guy stood up to shake my hand, and I'm looking up, and he was tall, taller than Stan Cabbage. I go, you are six, he said, seven feet. I took a picture with him, former basketball player, Stan knows him. I, I, I felt like a, a three-year-old standing next to this guy. I love being around athletes, but the reality is the church is a team. The, the church of Jesus Christ is a team sport. It's not individual sports. We got to hang together. We got to strive together. We got to agonize together. We got to work together. Why? For the advancement of Christ's kingdom. That's the purpose of this church, making disciples to advance Christ's kingdom. And we have to remember that the kingdom of God is here. Let me ask you this. When John the Baptist began his ministry and began preaching, what does it say? What did, what did he begin saying at the very beginning? He said, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus started speaking, what did he say? Repent for what? The kingdom 
of heaven is this is an apt illustration. I could put it out there, but what he's basically saying is it's here. It's here. With Jesus, the kingdom of God came. We understand the biblical procession, creation, fall, promise, fulfillment in Christ. The kingdom of God is here in Christ. There's still the final consummation to come, right? And so we live between the already and the not yet. The already of the fulfillment of the kingdom of God and the not yet of its fullness. But the kingdom is here. That's why we must stand firm together and why we must strive together for the faith of the gospel because there's only one faith. There's only one nation that's going to win. It's the people of God. And that's what we get to be a part of. It's such a privilege. Uh, I love... um, Uh, this call to strive together because there was a problem in Philippi. I told you Philippi was a good church, right? But they had problems. If you go back to uh, chapter four, you find this, which we're not going to cover in depth later. Some of you are saying, good, you took too long on chapter one as it is. But but, uh, we're not going to go into this in depth, but I want to read it to you right now. Philippians four, verse two, Paul writes, And this was read in church in Philippi. You ready? I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true uh, companion, probably the pastor of the church. Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who've shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Help these two women. I would have died if that was my name. How about you? How about you? I, a couple of weeks ago after I left church, I was walking out to my car and it was the Sunday that I had uh, brought up Robert Drain's name a couple of times. Robert's a friend of mine. He's one of your elders. I threw up, he said I could use his name if I wanted to. And he, he said anything for Jesus. So I brought up his name, and then afterwards, I was walking in my truck, and I was talking to a lady, and a real sweet lady, and I said, uh, what's your name? She goes, I'll tell you, but don't use it in church. <laughs> I love that. Her name is, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I love that. Christianity is a team sport. And that's why we don't, you know, you know, Paul didn't have time. These two ladies had helped him advance the gospel. Ladies, you're, you are crucial. Guys, we're all crucial. As Benjamin Franklin said uh, to the early leaders of our country, guys, if we don't hang together, surely we will hang separately. And we are past the day in America where we we have most favored religious status. Christians just don't. We just don't. Uh, You know what's killing pastors in America today? Tom Rainer, the church growth expert, said, uh, spiritual warfare, the surprising reality of pastoral leadership, it's harder than you guys know. You think we work one day a week. You're going to get the fever and die if you believe that. I want you to know. Our sense of inadequacy, critics and bullies, death by a thousand cuts, loneliness. 5,000 pastors a month drop out of ministry in the United States. You know what's killing churches? Preferences. Everybody's got a preference. It's so hard to lead today. Pastors, elders, staffs have, it's so hard because everybody's got a preference. 
I prefer this way of doing communion. I prefer this music. I prefer this preaching. I prefer, I prefer death by a thousand cuts. It's still Lent, isn't it? I got a challenge. How about if you fast from your preferences? When you have roast pastor today for lunch, don't talk about your preferences. Let it go. Your family's probably tired of hearing it anyway. Just saying. Change the metaphor. Make a good meal of your sacred cows. Great steak, great hamburger. Nostalgia will kill us. Grace makes us and keeps us following Christ, who keep the main thing, the main thing. Standing firm, striving together. Lastly, suffering fearlessly. Verses 28 through 30. This is powerful. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. Paul is saying these verses that are, they're powerful verses. Um, He says, Christians will have opposition. We always have guys. We always have, we always will. Uh, And so Christianity has opposition. We don't need to be overly alarmed by them uh, because we've always had it. And yet in America, as I've said, we've had a lot of favor for a lot of years. Done, passed, get over it. It's gone. You're a minority. Ah, there's some healing in that. Focus in that. Um, We've won. The cross is empty, so is the tomb. I love the early phrase of the early church, that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The more Christians suffered, the more the church expanded. For every gladiator that saw a Christian killed, he said, I, how, why are they doing this? And they came to faith. If you suffer for Jesus, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I used to get so paranoid about opposition. I kind of at a point in my life where I'm kind of enjoying it more. Um, if we allow grace to energize us, we will we will. Get in the mix with the gospel. I remember years ago, maybe some of you were there, at the UCF arena, Christopher Hitchens was debating Dinesh D'Souza in a debate. It was a, it was a gospel debate. And Christopher Hitchens, who wrote the uh, in, uh, Atheist Encyclopedia, I mean, he was, uh, he, 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 he was making fun of us right and left all the time. It was great. Dinesh D'Souza on the other hand, was trying to get him to stick to the facts. Let's talk about the facts of creation and of the gospel and of empty tomb. He couldn't do that. And the students there loved Christopher Hitchens. And every time he just stuck a knife in Christianity, they just roared, clapped, and laughed. And, and, you know, you get up from something like that and you go, well, how did you feel about that? Well, that's the way it is. I expected it. Expect people to make fun of you. If you believe in Christ, as you defend the gospel, um, 
I got a friend sent me an archaeological uh, uh, report this past week. I really loved it. Uh, uh, I like archaeology, and so he had sent this to me. He said, after having dug to a depth of 10 feet last year outside New York City, the scientists found traces of a copper cable uh, that they figured dated back about 100 years, and they'd come to the conclusion that the ancestors of New York had a telephone network more than 100 years ago. Yeah. Not to be outdone, the New Yorkers, uh, by the New Yorkers in L.A., they dug down 20 feet um, and, and uh, found that uh, an old copper cable was probably 200 years old, uh, signifying that 100 years before New York had it, they had a telecommunication system out there too. Amazing. One week later, after digging down 30 feet deep in a pasture near a community in Cochrane, Georgia, Bubba, a self-taught archaeologist, reported that he found absolutely nothing. And so he concluded that 300 years ago, Georgia had already gone wireless. I want you to know. (laughs) We make up facts. We look at facts differently. And we're going to face opposition. Look what Paul says. Verse 29. This is going to rock your world. You're not going to like it. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And the word for to you it has been granted, one word, It's the same word, charizomai. You guys have received the grace to believe, but along with the grace to believe comes the grace to suffer. Welcome to the family. It's our calling. So how about this? Get in some hot water this week. How about presenting the gospel to somebody that you presented it for, uh, to in the past, and you had a difficult discussion. How about bringing up Jesus with somebody that you know probably doesn't want to talk about Jesus again? Or somebody that you think might be, get into some hot water. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Which See, well, that's what grace does in the body. It enables us to stand firm, to strive together, to suffer fearlessly. This is talking about Jesus. This is talking about suffering for Jesus' name. But I recognize that some of you are here today and you are suffering for other reasons because of huge loss in your life. You got let go from your job. You did something that you regret and you shouldn't have done it. And you lost a lot. You're suffering. We suffer in this world and the gospel gives us the ability. It's a fire if we will allow the truth of God's unmerited favor in our lives in Christ to sink down in our hearts, to let it keep burning in us. It'll keep us united even if we suffer. It'll keep us moving forward as a church, as a people, connected together.
So get in trouble. What do you do with your life? Paul said, fruitful labor. What do we do with our life together? Fruitful outcomes. Even with fear. Even with fear. I like that old phrase. Fear knocked at the door. Faith answered. And there was no one there. All because of Jesus. Grace in the church. God is just beginning great things through Orangewood. You take it to heart. And let's pray. Our Father, what a privilege to be able to come today as your people and to worship. To come once again and to be brought once again to the end of ourselves and to realize that the end of ourselves means the beginning of life. And so we don't pretend to have it all together. We don't pretend today to stand on our own two feet. We stand only in Christ, by Christ, because of Christ, and because of your rich mercy and grace in our lives. And Lord, as we head out of here this week, we pray that you would be honored and glorified and and comfort the suffering hearts and unleash us as a church in your community. For we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.